Hi, everyone. My name is Shannon Calder, licensed therapist, and I'm joined by Dr. Kathy Barrett, forensic psychologist. We talk about all topics from a psychological perspective. Welcome to Terror Talk. Well, hello. It's Terror Talk with Shannon and Kathy. It certainly is. Yay. It's always nice to see you, my mm-hmm. dear. Um, today on the show, Kathy's going to hit her mic, which is a, <laughs> it's a prerequisite. Let's do a tally and then someone let us know on Instagram how many times I hit the mic in oh, one show. Oh God, you'd really have to be paying attention. I, some of them, you know, when I listen back to the show, you can't hear and then others you can. So I think you have the only accurate tally of how many times you've thrown your body into the I do. I throw my whole self into (laughs) it. I get so excited. So today on the show, we're going to talk about the docu-series, the four-part docu-series on Netflix called The Pharmacist. Um, It's kind of true crime meets the opioid crisis, basically. Mm -hmm. It's four parts. Uh, We just want to break down what the four parts consist of, so you have a little bit of a sense of it. The first part is... Basically, a father's pursuit of his son's killer. And so they set up that there's this man who happens to be a pharmacist, and his son is killed. And he pursues the killer because he's that kind of fella. Uh, And number two, as you soon realize, in the second part, the same father's pursuing um, actually a fellow pharmacist black market opioid business because his son's murder ends up being part of um, he was at the at the right place and the wrong place at the right time and the wrong time. Basically, he was buying drugs and got shot and he finds, you know, the father finds out he's an addict. And so we go down that road. The third part is the bigger picture. They do the macro. You know how, you know, the micro story is this man and his uh, deceased son and the murder pursuit. But the bigger picture is the opioid business, including pharmacists and then big pharma. So they do in the third section, they do the the macro view, the big they extrapolate out to the community at large. And then in the fourth part. They wrap up all the stories. They wrap up the father's story, the community's story, the opioid, you know, our opioid crisis doesn't get wrapped up, but there are some kind of salient discussion and details about it. Uh, and the father ends up being a, a force for change. He does, because I think like, although we have um, the opiate, uh, I wouldn't say crisis so much because now people are more aware of it. I think that was a time where it was, and we'll talk about this, but how psychiatrists and medical doctors normalized using opiates for pain. And this guy really was the one who started the whole revolution around, ah, this isn't normal. And what was, do you remember the name of the other guy? I think he worked for Big Pharma that they were interviewing and he's like, I'm stopping here. I'm oh, not, that, yeah, he I liked funny. him. I liked him a lot. Yeah. I liked him because he cussed. He just, and he was real, he and was real he wasn't and he, willing to sell a soul. Well, and he was sort of saying, which is, I think, what we all are really appreciate in other humans is when someone is sort of self-reflective and also can see their part in it mm-hmm. and own that and take responsibility for that. And then it's a good, his little sort of B story is a good one because you sort of, at the end, like Kathy was saying, he, he says, yeah. That was the moment when I got out of this altogether. Like I yeah. could not, I, I was going to have to testify and all of this stuff. And I just thought, oh, wow. I'm not going any deeper. I think I'm in the said, middle of yeah. a horror show kind of thing. Yeah. And I thought he was really a reflective of, I think, us as a culture, um, pharmacists. I'm sure a lot of um, good doctors got sucked into mm-hmm. this as and a lot of criminal doctors got sucked into this as is represented i think people are afraid to lose their jobs or expand um i don't know go against the grain and at that time people were getting a lot of work yeah. because of this and it was people like himself I'll, we'll have to find his name but it was people like himself who said i'm not going any deeper this is clearly killing people. And that was pretty revolutionary for that time because so many people, it was hand over foot, people selling this, whether they were selling it legally or illegally, 
doctors were, were drug pushers at that time for this drug and people became easily hooked and we'll talk about why. But I, I really respected this doctor who said, this is not worth um, other people's lives, my reputation, my integrity, all of that. So I respected him a lot. Yeah, and this main, um, you know, the series is titled The Pharmacist. So it really is this father's story. And in many ways, I mean, in, in all ways, it's the story of someone who simply persisted continually made himself a pest, you know, mm-hmm. it's all this. I mean, I think one of the interesting things I, I made a note of actually is just when you're looking at the personality of this father, you know, this advocate um, coming, obviously coming from a, a personal place with this and fueled by grief and oh, a need to know what happened at first. And then it became a much larger crusade. And he, he made, he made mention of, in one of the parts where him and his wife were talking and crying and discussing their son, he said something about, you know, if he, one of his regrets was, which we always have with grief, there there are no, you know, you always have regrets in grief. It's just part of the symptoms. He mentions that if he'd been a little easier, quote unquote, with his son, maybe he'd felt he would have felt more comfortable with me to mm-hmm. tell me what was going on with him. So it's like this personality trait of his where you know, he's dogged, but he also regrets being dogged. Like it got, it got all of this advocacy done and all of this change happening in the industry. But also when he, like he reflects personally back on his son, it's like, if I had, if I hadn't been that type of person, maybe he would have mm-hmm. not felt so like intimidated by me and he would have been able to open up. And that's like the road not traveled. He's just not. Yeah. I also up. think it's normal for a parent to think that um, if they did something differently, their child wouldn't have led themselves down to this place. And the truth is, and, and you and I both work with parents is sometimes, I don't know if it's a relief to them or, or less of a relief to let them know, you know, kids are going to make their own choices and it's not always about what you did or didn't do. I mean, that certainly plays a part in it. You know, it definitely does. But in situations like this, I don't know if there's really any reason to go back and think, I don't know what purpose it's going to serve him for him to shoot himself in the foot. I mean, to like, you know, beat himself up over it because we don't really know if that would have changed anything because this kid was, uh, he had a a lot going on. I do remember the, in the first episode where, and by the way, the father's name is Dan Snyder. He's the pharmacist. And Dan says, um, when he finds out, when he thinks he finds out who killed his son, He's, um, the person, the person who lets him know this says, do you want me to have him killed? Um, and, and Dan couldn't believe that there was a moment he wanted to say yes. And then he says, what world am I in? I mean, his whole perception of the world turned right into survival mode and it was very primal. And he was like, how am I at this place where I'm contemplating having the person who murdered my son murdered. It's really crazy how all of that just shifted for him so quickly. Also very human, right? Very human and and so much about um, just how fast things can change Mm -hmm. through grief and loss and the revenge fantasy and all of that Mm -hmm. that happened in that moment. And clearly he didn't do that. But he's like, I can't believe that there was this moment that I actually thought that that would that would fix all this. Yeah, that's a different documentary. <laughs> There's lots of documentaries where those kinds of things definitely happen. People act on in their grief. and I literally thought when you said that's a different documentary <laughs> that I had watched the wrong one. I'm like, oh, <laughs> shit. Are we not talking about this? I'm like, okay, well, you get to finish this then because I don't know what we're on. I think you would have noticed. (laughs) I'm like, which pharmacist did we watch? No, I just mean that's a story that could totally play out. For sure. Um, (laughs) So I wondered, I thought maybe maybe it would be good for us to both speak a little bit um, about our professional background with addiction and maybe any personal background with addiction or family members or what have you that affect us and maybe the reasons why we would choose to watch this and other things like it. Mm-hmm. Uh, how about you? Go ahead. I'll start personally. So my, okay. my mom um, has suffered from osteoarthritis all of my life 
a, a big chunk of hers. I think she was diagnosed in her 30s. And osteoarthritis, if people don't know what it is, is different from rheumatoid. It doesn't flare up so much as um, it's an autoimmune disease that attacks the joints and pretty much eats away at them. So she's had um, the majority of, of her joints in her body have been replaced with um, in surgery with fake joints. So she's had her thumbs, her wrists. Um, I think she's had recently stuffed on her, her neck, her hip, her, her health is like for her age, she's off the charts healthy, but this is the osteoarthritis is the second most painful to bone cancer. Um, and because it just eats away, uh, and it's incredibly painful. And I have watched my mom who is, um, such a light and so funny and so engaging and so loving over, I don't remember a time in my life where my mother was not in physical and emotional pain because of this. And although she'll have surgeries and it'll, she'll feel better for a while, she's had to rely a lot on pain management to get through her life. Um, she's now at a place where thankfully medicine's getting better. Um, and she's, I actually spoke to her the other day and it was the happiest and, and, out of pain. I've experienced her in a long time and I felt like I had her back again, which was really emotional because my mom and I are incredibly close. So when I call her and she's this depressed person and she's crying because she's in so much pain, I know that not all of that is due to the osteoarthritis, but how much her mood and her personality has changed due to being on opiates for a number of years. And so about three, four years ago, I went to visit her. She lives in Michigan. Um, <clears throat> I went to visit her and I was asking her what her doctors had her on. And my mom is, you know, considered an elder at this point. She's in her seventies. She's so, um, and there's a reason why I'm bringing this up and I'll say that in a second, but I started to ask her what, what the doctors were, were doing. And I knew like back in the day they had her on, Vicodin and then they pulled that away and then they had her on um, other things and and then I found out that they had given her Norcos and my mom is, is about as petite as it gets. She's frail from all of the opiates she's been on for years which kills your appetite and all that stuff. She's, she's really like down to nothing um, and so I said mom do you do you know how strong these medications are. And she goes, yeah, you know, Kathy, I've been taking them for years. I don't know what I'd, I said, well, you're, you're chemically dependent on them right now. Can I see what you're taking? Can I see how much you're taking? So she showed me the bottle and, um, it was well over the dose that she should be taking for her size and her age. And I became incredibly angry, not at her, but, um, I said, mom, do you know that Norcos are, are pretty much a, a pill form of heroin? And she just started bawling her eyes out. She goes, no one has ever explained that to me before. And I, I, I became increasingly upset. And I said, um, if, can you please talk to your doctor about helping you wean off of this? We're going to find you a different way to manage your pain. And if not, please let him know. My brother is a chemist and I'm a psychologist. And I said, please make it clear to him that you have two doctors in the family who are well aware how, how this is potential elder abuse if he is not giving you other options and not telling you exactly what you're taking. She essentially had a PRN, mm -hmm. which yeah. is an as needed for Norcos. Um, and some people, I don't know about your mom's situation, mm -hmm. obviously. I, I know what you've just told everyone, but it's like she may need to be on a low dose. She mm -hmm. just doesn't need to be on the high dose. She should not be on a high dose. They so, can wean her off of it. And she was scared about the withdrawal. So anyway, we ended up working with her doctors and they were able to um, wean her off of that high of a dose. And she's, I think, on half of what she was taking, if not less. And between the surgery and other things, um, you know, I had talked to her about doing acupuncture and all these other things. But it angered me that there's so much out there between the CBDs and the acupuncture and all these other, and I understand she has chronic pain. Not all of her, her pain is going to be taken away from homeopathic remedies. However, a combination of homeopathic and maybe a low dose of opiates would have been the way to go. But the fact that she wasn't educated, nobody talked to her about it. And she's going in as a, an older woman. And my brother even said, I will go 
to the doctor with you next time if this is an issue because we were both incredibly angry. So I I hate um I hate this industry. I hate opiates. And I know they serve serve a purpose for a lot of people, but I've seen more people get on them without being told how to get off than people who have been successfully on them without any emotional or psychological. Um, well, and maybe, dependency. maybe. So my question would be, if I didn't know you, is so what professionally gives you the so what's your professional experience that sort of gives you the background to be able to question the medical doctor well i think you know working in multiple residential treatment centers you and i met at tarzana treatment center here in los angeles and watching people go through the detox the medical detox you know there's certain medications that you you have to medically detox from opiates you do not you don't die coming off of opiates but it's incredibly painful and uncomfortable um and i would say and i don't know if you remember this but i would say upwards of 65 percent of our detox clients were people who were trying to come off of opiates due to surgeries people who were not um they didn't start out abusing drugs or alcohol recreationally. It was more so they had gone into a surgery or tweaked their back or something and they had been prescribed an opiate and the doctors gave them all this and, and they were like, you know, we're not going to tell you how you come off of them, but we can tell you where to get them and how to get them. And I just, I saw people so desperate, um, and how they had given up on their recovery because they were like, Kathy, I can't live without this. And it was helpless. It was like a learned helplessness. Mm-hmm. And I've seen it in my practice as well as working in those settings. So, yeah. and then just taking classes on how these medications work in the brain. Mm-hmm. I asked that question because one, I know the answer, <laughs> <laughs> but I also, um, also think it's important for people to hear that after saying you were, you know, kind of, talking to the doctor and and telling them what they should and shouldn't be doing kind of a thing that it might sound that way to people. But when you've seen, when you've worked in addiction treatment, you work with doctors all the time. So you, you learn things from them and you see what works and what doesn't and how different people react. And, um, you help patients advocate for themselves in those settings. So, um, so yeah, so professionally, uh, Kathy and I met at Tarzana treatment center which is, um, I think in 2012, kind of a big dog on the block in LA as far as, uh, addiction treatment that is available to everyone. In other words, they have, they take Medi-Cal and they, they have the GR bill. And so they take in, um, people who are homeless and they have, uh, um, all kinds of different programs for different, um, lifestyles you know they they really do mm-hmm. span the globe yeah, it's like private treatment. pay all the way through insurance through sliding scale yeah when we had, when we were there i had people that were cash paying and yeah. all the way to people that were homeless so um it was great great education yeah. <laughs> and then um i also worked at cliffside malibu for just under four years both in the malibu location and then a short-lived uh, Sherman Oaks location that they had, and then they got bought out by this uh, a, m- a much bigger company, and and it changed, and I moved on, and now I have a different job. But you, you and I have done actually most of our addiction work together. Yeah. So because I went over with Shannon too, um, I was there just contracted to do groups and things. But so we've we've I think we've also you and I have seen the dichotomy in in those mm-hmm. types of settings where it's very privileged versus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the Malibu treatment world, um, I, there was still a lot of diversity in the sense that I saw people that were definitely independently wealthy, um, celebrity status, owning major companies, this kind of person to, you know, lots of 20 somethings that were there on their parents' um, insurance uh, because, they were dying of slowly dying of heroin addiction usually. Um, Mm -hmm. so, and then personally, I would say that there's a lot of reasons why addiction is interesting to me personally. But one of the ones that I'll share in this moment is that I have a cousin who died of opiate overdose. And so, and that he was 34 
and I'm not going to go into the whole story because that's a personal story for his immediate family. But what, what I will say is that it was an accidental overdose from all the all the information that I have. And he was 34 years old and it was tragic. And he was my youngest cousin and he died. And I believe it was fentanyl. Mm. And so, and he had been struggling with addiction for, for many years. And so that actually, it's not the reason why I was at Tarzana. It, it actually happened between then and now. So I don't know. It's the most, I guess I could say it's the most recent personal story that, um, so that's when I started to really get into, really look into the <clears throat> opioid crisis yeah. and, and then also had a lot of information about it from where I had worked and everything. And so when we're talking about opiates, just to be clear, um, in the, in the docu-series, they're talking about Oxycontin a lot and mm -hmm. heroin. And then at the very end, they kind of talk a little bit about fentanyl, a little bit, yeah. meaning, mm -hmm. meaning like that's the, the end of the road in a way it's like the strongest. Mm -hmm. And if you don't know what other opiates would be, obviously, um, morphine dilated um codeine so for those of you who do a little nyquil percocets percocets norcos um soma somas are yeah. opiates too right mm -hmm. um they use soma actually sometimes as a substitute for uh methadone mm -hmm. yeah um Tramadol, um, which is something, and methadone, you know, those are things that are used in treatment in the beginning sometimes to wean people off. Um, yeah, hydrocodone, if you hear that a lot. Yeah, so that, that about covers it. So you were going to talk, actually, uh, actually, you know what, let's take a break. So we're going to take a break, and then after um, the break, we are going to talk brain I said, I said to Kathy before we started, I'm like, you could do the brain stuff and then we'll talk about some addiction treatment. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll be right back. While we take a break, go follow us on Instagram at Terror Talk Podcast, Twitter at Talk Terror, or on our Facebook page, Halloween All Year Long. If you prefer email, it's terrortalkpodcast at gmail.com. So reach out. If you like us, you can help us by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes, or check out our Patreon page. We upload new episodes every Wednesday and Friday. Keep coming back, but first, stick around for more of our show. We are back. Thanks for the break, Kathy. You're welcome. I appreciated it. Um, You're so welcome. Let's talk addiction in the brain. I think that's where you were going to go with it. I was going to talk about a couple different things. One okay. is just sort of like the chemical effects of what opiates do and then how our brain reward system responds to it. So opioids um, produce what are called psychoactive effects. So they alter the way our chemical system works in the brain. So they have to have a really similar physical makeup to what are called our opiate receptors in the brain. So these are our own, our, our, the brain's own pain-relieving chemicals, these neurotransmitters that, that hook up to these opiate receptors, okay? So when, we, when an opioid or a synthetic opiate comes into our body, it has to know, it, it goes right to that same pain-relieving receptor. It works exactly the same. So it plays a pivotal role in why opioids carry such a high potential for abuse and addiction. So an and another way of saying this is our body has a natural way of reducing pain. Okay, we have like our own morphine when we experience pain. The problem is when we are shooting something or taking something that goes to those receptors, when we're not necessarily in pain, or even if we are, it may actually cre cause the brain to hyper-respond in a way that we kind of burn out those receptors, right? Mm -hmm. So our natural pain receptors don't really work as much anymore. They don't work as well anymore because they're getting this 
synthetic version of this. Okay. So the relief of pain, um, and, and the numbing of something can become incredibly addicting. So, so with each dose, the opioids stimulate certain brain cell sites, causing an increase in neurotransmitter chemical outputs at high levels. And this is where that burnout happens. So these effects not only take a toll on the individual brain cell, but disrupts the balance. So it's harder for the brain to go back to just like doing its own thing. It's like, no, I need this now to feel better. Um, so it takes a hold of the brain. It basically hijacks it. Right. And then the reward system, the brain's reward system regulates a person's learning process, which ties into the brain's cognitive and emotional function. So what that means is the brain learns more and more that it needs this and starts to depend on this to either feel normal or to feel a relief at all. Um, so as chemical imbalances become more pronounced from the abuse, the brain's reward system learns to define the drug's effects as a positive, positive motivating factor within a person's daily life. So this is the heart of the addiction. The brain goes, I no longer know how to function without this, but the longer someone uses it, it burns out the brain's natural ability to produce it itself. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah. When you're talking about that, I was thinking, I was actually just telling a client the other day, um, you know, it was specifically about meth use, but it, it's the same, it's a similar situation with opiates in the sense that I think one of the things when we're like getting sober is you're, you're kind of looking for replacement behaviors. You're looking for things that will give you joy or give you a high or, give, you know, so they'll start gambling or whatever. It's that do. reward system. And what I, what unfortunately I've had to educate many people on is that it won't ever be as good. No. And so, you know, that's a, that's a conversation I have <laughs> on the reg. Uh, you know, it won't be as good. And they're sort of like, but I thought, I, we were so, like, I got to like, what if I'm a runner or something, you know? And, and I just talked to them about the brain and how you've, you've, unfortunately, one of the repercussions here is that you've blown out that particular, the reward system. Now, certainly there is recovery and over years, um, the doctors tell me that some parts of it recover, some don't, um, Certain drugs are harsher on the reward system than others. How long you've been using, how much you use, yeah. when you started using. Yeah, the kindling in the brain over time, mm -hmm. um, you know, all kinds of different things. So, But to, um, your, to your point that the when you talk about how um, you, you let your clients know it's never going to feel like what you were doing, um, it's because it does, it does start to play – as much or more importance as like food and water and basic. Th I mean, it, and we've seen people who will go weeks without really wanting any food or that's all they want. The brain's like, that's it. That's all I need. I don't need anything else. For survival. Yeah. Um, the brain's trying to survive. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's gotten itself where it needs this thing to survive and the, it needs more and more of it to survive. And I, you know, I, I, it's a hard conversation to have sometimes, uh, but it's also a piece of the grief work that I do with addicts because part of it is grieving that feeling, grieving the lifestyle, grieving um, the you know the per the hot pursuit of something that is so important. There's a high to that, you know. A lot of addiction is um, anticipatory addiction, where we're a huge part of it is where the anticipation of using the drug is way more satisfying than the actual drug use, especially after the beginning. Um, and most people you're working with in addiction treatment have been doing it for a while, mm -hmm. <laughs> if not decades. And so they're not actually having fun and they're not necessarily getting high either. Uh, they're just trying to stay alive and, and stave off withdrawal. So there's a, there's a massive grief part to it. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, um, I think that's why so often in the beginning, like we use the term like white knuckling, you know, people are more so trying to get sober than be in recovery, which is why just getting sober doesn't work because getting sober just means you're not using, but it doesn't mean you're doing the work to find other types of balance and pleasure and rewarding things in your life. You're just going day to day and trying not to use. And that can be an incredibly, um, disabling and and depressing state to be in and I know you and I have both seen people who are not really ready yet to dive into recovery um so when when we look at like why are some people affected more than others and we we just talked a little bit about that but we also look at you know their psychological history we look at um presently what's going on in their life family history of 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 mental illness and addiction is really important because whether we go with the theory that it's biological or environmental, it's passed down one way or the other. And I know that there's multiple theories around whether addiction itself is, is biological or is it that transgenerationally, this is how families have learned how to cope with stressors and things. So it doesn't really matter. It's still, it's still historical. And then present day circumstances in terms of like, what is this person's stress level and what's their stress management like? And most addicts have very low tolerance for discomfort or stress management and why they need to use in order to manage stress. Yeah. I, I, I don't, I think I come, I think you and I are on the same page with this particular piece, but maybe not. We'll find out right now. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I come from a, a, a feeling, a base, a core belief. That's the word I'm looking for. I come from a core belief that addiction is a coping strategy. It's just mm-hmm. a maladaptive one. Mm-hmm. Um, I understand that certainly some people are wired for it and some people aren't, but I also know that the, the converse is true. In other words, people that aren't wired for it can be addicts and vice versa And because of what Kathy's talking about, like all of the whole system and how it's affected. I mean, we were just talking about this father in this series. I mean, you could see how a, a different kind of personality, he could have become <laughs> an addict to deal with his grief or sure. he could have, you know, I mean, there's just like all kinds of, or a killer. He could have become a killer you know, to feel revenge for his son's murder, but he chose not to. And so there's all those little choices, but I do come from a core belief that it's a, it's coming from a, a mental illness behind for sure the use. Now I, I can say that there's exceptions. I have met one or two people and that's one or two out of a thousand, let's say, but I have met one or two people that really did not seem to have an, a pre-existing mental health issue. Mm-hmm. Um, they got into it for, um, you know, a surgery mm-hmm. and then six months, a year later realized they needed help to get off of it. They realized they actually couldn't get off of it. Mm-hmm. They didn't know what they were set up for. And then they seek treatment and they do treatment and they get off of it and they have a really good success rate because it really was just this this, they got themselves into a situation, but yeah, absolutely. And, and that's, I think even my mom who has been on opiates for years, I would say that because she doesn't have the mental health component tied to it, um, it was much easier for her to titrate. Like she wasn't, she was scared about what those withdrawals would be. She didn't want to be in pain. She want, yeah, but it wasn't this. So I think this is interesting because if we go to episode three of of this documentary, Mm -hmm. there's this astounding conclusion about, um, this doctor's talking and he says there's a difference between addiction versus physical dependency. If you stop using, um, you may get a craving, but there's no psychological dependence. And that's incredibly false. Um, and, and how the FDA actually says this will lower addictive properties like oxy, um, you know, why wouldn't you use it? It's, it, it has low addictive properties. So there was so much false information and there was such a, a disconnect between the mental health world and the medical world, which there often is psychiatrists and psychologists. We argue all the time about things because we are mm-hmm. coming from two very different schools. Um, there was a time where psychiatrists were required to take courses in psychology, but now most of their training is in biology. Uh, it's very different now because there's, there's, it's very different work. Um, some psychiatrists, you'll see them blend, uh, 
mental health and medicine, but more, I think what I see more are psychiatrists and psychologists oftentimes disagreeing on things like this. I understand this is an old documentary. I'm not putting psychiatrists down. I work with many who are incredibly um, educated and great at mental health. I'm making a blanket statement right now. Just There's a difference between the two schools of thought. And so this doctor, I just thought it was such a dangerous message to say, you know, there's such a difference between addiction and physical dependency. And although there is some truth to that, like what you and I are just talking about, to completely rule out the fact that anyone who's going to be put on this medication for pain is not going to have a psychological dependency is absurd. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the message and so people were told that this was safe and that there wasn't going to be any any dependency. Yeah, they were sold a bill of goods, so to speak. But yeah, and FYI, for those of you who aren't in this field, it, that isn't the common, this is not the common thing now. No. Um, every, every place I've worked, every place I've heard of others work, worked, everything I read, every but I talked to the common theme now is that both, in other words, medical detox can be extremely necessary, you know, to prevent things like death mm-hmm. and also to have a modicum of um, comfort during a time when you actually do need to be doing some personal work and then titrating off of that. But it, ev- most people know that uh, mental health and, um, medical support are coupled together mm-hmm. for successful treatment. Um, I did want to just say when Kathy said it was an old documentary, she meant then the it happened Sorry. in like the nineteen ninety. It's, it's an old story, like late nineties, right? Yeah, nineteen ninety nine yeah. is when his son was shot, and then over the course of the next whatever several years is when it happened. But this actually did come out uh, in twenty twenty in February. Um, Oh, golly, there was something I was going to say while you were talking, and I forgot. Yeah, this this series, I, I, so what did you think of the series sort of in general? What did you think of the documentary as a documentary, stepping away like from the content? I actually, I went into it with very low expectations. I, I thought I'd be kind of bored, that I was going to watch it more to just, do the research for this, Mm -hmm. but I actually really enjoyed it and it showed different parts. It wasn't just about the epidemic. It showed, um, what it was like to be a parent who loses a child to this, what it was like to be caught up in this part of the world where selling drugs and dealing drugs and overdosing on drugs, um, being led into that part of the world and, um, really being informed. It's not this all or nothing. It's very complicated. It's very layered. And then how they bring in Dr. Cleggett, who ends up being, um, you know, losing her license for basically selling this stuff out her back door, but then finding out that she as well was addicted. Um, I mean, it, it, it's just, it, I think that it's really easy to look at something like this and go, Oh, these, you know, drug pushers and, thugs and all this stuff, but it, this really opens people up to see anyone can get trapped in this. And it's really easy to just be like, that's their world. I would never be a part of that. And they're drug infested and whatever, but how you have this family, white middle class, you know, you have the inner city piece of it. You have the educated black doctor, all getting sucked into, it does not discriminate. Mm -mm. I think what most people don't realize and that we see a lot in addiction treatment, so I'll share this, is that uh, someone who may start out on pills of some kind or patches of some kind with a prescription from a doctor, a lot of, it used to be that, and they still have them, uh, they're called pain clinics. And you go in and some pain clinics are real pain clinics where they're going to try to help you manage it holistically. They may be able to prescribe you medications when necessary, uh, but there's also non-addictive pain medications that are widely used in addiction treatment as well. So some of them are regular and helpful and wonderful. And then there's a whole lot of places that's like a side of a 
you know, it's like in a mini mall <laughs> with a door. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're pain clinics and you just go and you get your prescriptions. So that you start out with pills, you're getting prescriptions. Sooner or later, doctors will cut you off and then you're addicted. And so you're cut off. You've your life has maybe taken a turn, not for the better financially, et cetera. And what's cheap and easier to get is heroin. And so then people become heroin addicts and it kind of was a slow. And, and so I think a lot of people think that, you know, the, the pills and the heroin aren't connected, but they're, I mean, what we both saw was they're very often connected because that was what they could afford. That was easier to get. The doctors cut you off. They get you addicted and then cut you off. Mm -hmm. Um, Especially now, I would say now in our culture, you can, it's much harder to get prescribed like from a non-pain clinic kind of doctor, it's much harder to get prescribed opiates, but there are certainly circumstances where you would. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can also go to pain clinics, et cetera. And then they ha- they have a, they kind of had an edict now after all of this happened back, you know, and through what we're talking about during this time period, the early 2000s, they now have a kind of rules around how long you can be on them and all that. And they'll cut you off. So mm-hmm. you, you got to get it somewhere else. You can't really be on it for years in most urban communities. I'm going to put it that way. Most urban communities going to your average general practitioner person, not a pain clinic, et cetera, you're going to get titrated off pretty quickly. Yeah. I mean, I remember the days when you used to get, maybe, I don't know if you remember this, Kathy, but I used to get codone for like, dental treatments that were intense i used to get like um, root canals and stuff yeah uh let's see percocet vicodin yeah vicodin was the one you could get you you i remember having to take vicodin for my um Mm -hmm. for my wisdom teeth Mm -hmm. that's what it was i hated it i i I I was hallucinating i hated i don't like opiates that much they're horrible um but yeah i used to get that so now when as many of our listeners probably know now when you get because I've had lots of dental stuff done. Um, you get, you know, take Tylenol. <laughs> Go get yourself some Tylenol. Yeah. It'll be fine. Um, and it is. I mean, for me, obviously, everybody has different pain thresholds. Uh, the only time in recent years where I was given a prescription for any kind of opiate was when I actually had dental surgery where mm-hmm. they, like, cut your mouth oh, open yeah, and yeah, stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and even then, I was like, do I, I? I remember I asked the guy, I said, do I have? to take the opi- like do i have is there something else i can take he's like you're gonna want it <laughs> it's gonna hurt like hell you're you're actually really I, I appreciate your thought process there but you're gonna really want it and of course i left thinking like nah i'll be fine take some tylenol whatever so <laughs> you get home the, the pain stuff wears off you know whatever they gave me wore off luckily i had gotten the prescription filled just because the guy was like just get it filled you can always right, you know right. throw they it in you, the trash whatever yeah. when you're done so i got it filled when i was still feeling the effects of the novocaine and i got it home and i think i dozed off for a little bit and then i woke up mm-hmm. and yeah it was a bit it was bad if i if i was going to sleep if i was going to be able to sleep i had so i remember i took one yep and then the next morning and I never had to take another one, but that's, that, that's but how that, I was with my, but that 24 hour period. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty. So I understand. It's no, so yeah. what we're saying is we, we understand it's, it's like importance. Yeah. It's an extremely important, um, drug in surgeries sure. and all kinds of stuff. So I'm like you though. I don't even take Tylenol unless I absolutely need it. Yeah. I I've had a uh, horrible allergies this season. It's why I'm, I have this cough. I've had it for a month and I've taken Claritin every single day which i've never had to do because i don't usually like to take it unless i literally can't mm-hmm. function right um because i'll i'll push through it like you do i don't i don't like how i've felt on opiates when i've quote unquote had to take them yeah yeah me yeah. neither uh i wanted to talk a little bit about um you know in this documentary they don't go into treatment at all because that's really not what it's about. It's it's really about this this father's story. And and I wanted to say also, I totally agree with you in the sense that I wasn't really looking forward to watching this documentary. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of feeling like okay, been there, done that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And and certainly yes, I've known a lot of stories, and so it wasn't like the story was necessarily riveting to me. 
But I would say that the best documentaries in general are ones that have, um, you know, a micro story and a macro story. So it's like a personal story that you're following that actually has its own twists and turns, which this one does um, with the prosecution and all kinds of stuff. And then there's this macro story that's it's set within this like cultural socio important story. Mm -hmm. So I enjoyed it in that way. Um, was I bored sometimes? Yeah, for sure. Because I know a lot of the information. Um, but then they would, they would cut back to Dan, who's the pharmacist and he is such a character that I can see why you would want him to be mm -hmm. the subject of not only did he create all this advocacy and he's just, but he's just this really interesting dude. <laughs> like he's got a personality. So that always, that's a, that makes the documentary good too. Is mm -hmm. Everyone, um, you know, having some good personalities going on. Um, but I did want to talk a little bit about kind of where we come from, maybe to wrap up this portion of the show, like where we come from uh, treatment-wise with addiction. Um, I think one of the things in our industry that is widely debated is whether or not therapists should uh, attempt to have uh, people who are still using uh, as clients. I think that's one of the things that I see bandied about a lot on like message boards and within our community. And I'll just say that, you know, I've obviously worked in addiction treatment where people are um, not allowed to use. Uh, they often leave treatment, relapse and come back. So there's a lot of that. And I've also worked in private practice along the way I would say with two handfuls of people, I'm trying to remember all their faces, which I am now. I remember all their faces now. Um, like two handfuls of people that were still drinking or still using some kind of substance daily, marijuana often, alcohol often, um, uh, speedballs and and some version of that. Sometimes speedballs are heroin and mess. Sometimes their speedballs are whatever's an upper and a downer together. That's a, to me, that's a speedball. Um, where you have those counteracting the highs and the lows to try and stay in the middle. I've, I've treated people who are still using and it's been really actually quite valuable. And there mm -hmm. were rules. Mm -hmm. You don't come altered you to, you to session. Yeah. And if you do, I understand and I'm in a non-judgmental place, but we will not be conducting our session because I can't work with someone who's uh, either asleep or wired mm -hmm. <laughs> because it mirrors bipolar and then that gets really confusing and you know, and that's that ha early, early, early on that happened to me once or twice where someone was really presenting like unmedicated bipolar and I was really confused. I was mm -hmm. super new and I was like, I would go to my supervisor and say, what? I don't. And they're like, you might want to ask about drug use. And next time you see that person, I'm like, OK, cool. And then I did. And then we were good. I learned something. Yeah. But um so a lot of therapists, and so when I've treated those people, many of them have had stories about how they were so grateful that I would see them because they really wanted to get off whatever substance they were addicted to, but no therapist would see them unless they were sober. Um, and I validate them for not lying to those therapists mm -hmm. because that would be pretty easy to do, oh, yeah. at least at first. Yeah. Uh, but then you really wouldn't be working because you need honesty to like work through the stuff. I think the difference is, is whether the clinician wants to go through that with them. Mm -hmm. um, and when I say that, I'm not, I don't want to come off like I'm permitting the person who's addicted to just, yeah, use and it's still fine if you use and you can show up and we can talk about it. It's not, it's not permissiveness as much as it is, um, if, if you, it would be like saying, I can't have you depressed. <laughs> you need to be over the depression and then we can work. Have uh, a monster before you this, come. To yeah, this is, so their, <laughs> this is their symptom. Yep. Right? It's so maladaptive coping skill, <laughs> right? So to me, I also have had rules, but I also know that I've had a handful of clients who um, they were not, using drugs anymore, but they would still drink intermittently between sessions and things like that. And we would talk about, um, 
how this was serving them and why they believe that they were ready to just, which they weren't, but that was not my, I can't just say, you're not ready to do this. We have to, it was really about exploring, well, why do you think you can manage this now? Because it's a different drug, but it was very useful. Um, but I, I, and that's, it's a stylistic thing, but I agree with you. I, I think it would also depend on the level of addiction. If this person was not able to show up and really be present because the, the addiction was really dominating their lives, that would be problematic. But for someone who was intermittently still using or relapsing and needed that space to really figure stuff out, um, to me, it's not a requirement. Yeah. Agreed. I mean, there's, we, as we talk about a lot, we do assessments. You assess whether or not the person is uh, right for right. your practice, for you, for the particular. For me, I look at it from a stages of change perspective. So exactly, like, you know, people are coming to you pre-contemplative or contemplative. I mean, I'm, I've I've gotten into things where I have clients for a while, and I'm starting to think, okay, they have an addiction issue, but they don't even really know it yet. Yep. And so then you're working in a pre-contemplative stage of change, meaning. Uh, they don't know anything that is wrong. And so then you're working from that angle. And then if they're in contemplation, it means they know something's wrong. They just don't know. They have no fathomable idea how they would live their life without it. And so then we talk about it as long as they're not using in session, as long as they make their sessions, as long as they are um, paying, because that's an energy exchange that's really important to the work, just like doctors or anybody else. Um, it's a service that you're providing. It's about them. And so there's all these like little ethical and legal pieces of it. But I also know that the success, you know, there's been a couple of times where I've worked with someone for four or five years. And when I first knew them, they were, you know, using cocaine and marijuana and alcohol. And two years in, they were off cocaine and then three years in they were off marijuana and then alcohol was the last beast, you know, and then four years in they're off alcohol and then I get to see them for a year or two sober and I get pictures of their kids. You know what I'm saying? Like, so I just feel like if you, I think what you said was really important. It's about, it's about the practitioner. And so I can sit in non judgmental stance with them and I can have empathy and I understand addiction enough to know what it is and what it isn't. And I can work with people in different stages of change. So I get it where some therapists are like, I can only work with people who have been sober for two years because they're in an action stage of change. They're, they're in maintenance. Actually, they're, they're working towards it. They're making it happen. Um, because they just, it's not their wheelhouse. Mm hmm. And it is important to know your wheelhouses because mm -hmm. sitting with someone and and judging them for using, you know, alcohol or meth or marijuana or whatever as a coping skill, uh, judging them isn't going to do anybody any good. No, or or if your anxiety is too high because the work is not going fast enough. Oh too. yeah, that's a I big mean, problem in our profession all, all together. Of, <laughs> all of us who have worked in addiction know to not get invested in someone's sober moment. You will, you will learn your own codependency issues and you will either be cured of them <laughs> and get treatment for them or you will not. <laughs> and then, and then you will know. And it's a really excellent, I mean, for new therapists, I think it's an excellent exercise in managing your own codependency and learning how you may have gotten into the profession to save people. And, you know, that's not going to go well mm -hmm. because we're not saving anybody. <laughs> we're just showing up to work and trying to help. Um, I believe that's that. That is a pharmacist, unless you have anything else. That's it. That's it. We solved that problem. Just kidding. World peace. Um, mm. We're going to come back and we're going to do our what the hell segment in just one moment. Oh, and then I hit the mic. <laughs> <Bonk>. <laughs> We're professionals. Welcome back. Um, so this is our what the hell segment where we each bring a uh, true crime story that makes us say what the hell. And I can't remember who went first last time. Mm, I don't know. You yeah. want to go first? Sure. Okay. So <laughs> I was just saying to Kathy in the break, I'm not sure if we've done this one before because I'm realizing that idiots are idiots in the same way over and over and over again. So Maybe you know this one, maybe you don't. Let me tell you a little story about 18-year-old David. 
It was caught by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Mounted? Yeah, they're on horses. Oh, oh. It's just well, beg your pardon. What, <laughs> yeah. So what visual came to mind for you, Kathy? Um, I don't know. Police mounting another police? I don't know. That was strange. Not Canadian, obviously. Like not, Kathy like is not police, Canadian. Not like police on horseback, you know, mounted. <laughs> no, they call them mounted police. <laughs> they do that in England, too. That's hilarious. Um, in the town of Stetler... So David was caught by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police in the town of Stetler for drunk driving. So they arrest him and they, you know, put him in the back of the vehicle. And while sitting in the back of the patrol car, um, David apparently tried to eat his own underwear. Oh, (laughs) I don't know how. So here's my first question. There's a little bit more, but like my first question is with his hands cuffed, how did he get? The underwear. It was a con- contortionist. <laughs> or for you Canadians, maybe they, maybe you don't get cuffed and put in the back of the car. Maybe you just get put in the back of the car, you know, because it was for drunk driving. Maybe they didn't need to cuff him. If anyone out there is Canadian <laughs> and knows how this works or if there's a different policy, I'm, I'd like to know. Or Please if there's know. a contortionist that can tell me how to get your underwear off while your hands Listen, it doesn't are say bound he wasn't a contortionist. <laughs> no, it does not. There is no opt out of the contortionist. I'm going with that. So, you know, then, of course, it became, why'd you do that, guy? And so he said he thought it would absorb the alcohol in his stomach and allow him to pass the breathalyzer test. (laughs) Have another, David. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know when he gave that answer. Maybe that was in court three weeks later. And we're dealing with a Mensa, a Mensa candidate. Okay. That's my story. Your turn. This is just, <laughs> that whole visual is terrible. Maybe he didn't have a torso. I don't know. <laughs> just his head went right into his junk. Yeah, maybe so. I just I'm just ima- like I'm just imagining the chewing. I, I, don't, I don't really know. Just going at it. Okay. Tidy whities. Yeah. I, All oh, right. Boy or boxers. <laughs> the social networking burglar. Thanks to the never-ending onslaught of police procedural shows, everyone in the world now has a pretty good understanding of the basics of forensic evidence. Wear gloves, clean shoes, hats. There's no excuse anymore for conducting a crime that leaves behind evidence that can be tracked back to you. It's just one of the rules of the game. So this now brings us to Trevor Jones, who apparently is playing his own game. He was robbing a house in 2011 parks his car in the driveway, goes inside to get a Robin, what they call it. A mounted Robin? Mounted a Robin. (laughs) Um, You know, gets his robbing on. Legitimate (laughs) resident of the home returns around and then to find a strange car in the driveway and her door open. Perhaps wisely choosing not to step inside. So instead, she looks inside the strange car in her driveway and takes the keys and wallet that were apparently just sitting in his car because, you know, you can't hold that when Robin. Oh, God. So then she takes off, taking with her all of the evidence needed to blow this case wide open. So thankfully, for the sake of this story, this did not deter Trevor Jones at all. So when he returns to his car with the stolen goods and realizes his keys and wallet were missing, he does not give up. He, so he fear, he so furiously did um, not give up. In fact, that his next move was to sprint straight into a nearby pond because he's an awesome criminal. Mm-hmm. On the other side of the pond, he broke into another house where he logged into Facebook because who the fuck even cares anymore? <laughs> What's happening? And yes, when he sprints out of that home, leaving behind puddles and Trevor Jones-shaped stains on the couch, mm. he forgets to log out of Facebook. Of course. Oh, my course God. Oh, my God. So the greatest part of this whole story is that based on a cursory search of Google, um, it doesn't look like the police ever caught him, which means that to this day, every single one of us is at risk of returning home to find a bunch of our stuff missing. I am Trevor Jones scribbled in lipstick on the walls <laughs> and a Trevor Jones shaped hole in the wall of our house. <laughs> but this guy literally like exposed himself all over the place, yeah. leaves his 
ID out. Then he goes and leaves his Facebook on. Yeah. And he, I mean, what a mess. And then wasn't caught? He was not caught. So who's the stupid one? <laughs> I, I just, I, I don't even know what's happening right he now. He sprints out of that home, runs across, goes into another house and robs that house, but goes onto their Facebook. Yeah. And doesn't like the whole, th- I don't. It doesn't seem right in the head, really. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much for that. You're welcome. <laughs> We're eating underwear and checking Facebook today. Um, <laughs> that's our episode on the pharmacist. That was um, that was good. That was interesting. I think we'd both recommend the documentary. Yeah, it was good. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much. Please tune back in on Friday for our Shrink Chat show. Um, thank you so much for listening. This is Terror Talk. My name is Shannon. And I'm Kathy. Sleep safe, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Terror Talk. If you enjoyed this show, there are two things you could do for us. Subscribing and sharing our episodes on social media, as well as writing a review on iTunes. Plus, you could check out our Patreon page. Don't hesitate to contact us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. We upload new episodes of Terror Talk every Wednesday and of Shrink Chat every Friday. Until then, goodbye and have a pleasant tomorrow.